is a passage, uh, today's scripture passage is John 3, verses 22 to 36, and it begins on page 1618 in the Pew Bible. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. Look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Thanks, Rika. It's great to see babies. Um, also, some of you were here a few weeks ago when Pastor Vince and I talked about um, confession. And I, for those of you who don't know what's going on in everybody else's life, let me tell everybody's secrets. I mean, I'm just kidding. I actually have heard stories from a number of people and from their small groups of a lot of people really going for that and taking really deep personal risks and confessing stuff and people praying for each other and helping each other. And um, there was a lot, there's a lot of that going on if you weren't part of one of those small groups. And it's really encouraging to see people, um, people confessing stuff they'd hid for a half a decade or more. So it's really great to see people applying the gospel and experiencing freedom and joy. So, okay, today. <clears throat> today we're talking about the second half of John 3. And this title of the series is Upside Down because Jesus is prone to do that with how people tend to look at the world. And oftentimes, if you're a Christian, you would naturally think that he does this, especially with people who are irreligious or not Christians. And um, that's in some ways true, but if we look at John 3, there aren't any irreligious people in John 3. The only kind of people there are in John 3 are extraordinarily pious, spiritual, religious people. Everybody in John 3 is that way. 
So we're not talking about anybody um, getting flipped upside down who's irreligious or not a Christian or anything like that. You might remember from um, the substance series that we talked about this passage out of Matthew where Jesus says that um, the eye, so this is a metaphor that he uses, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, then your whole body is full of light. Not, not meaning literally that your whole body is full of light, but your whole body benefits from the sight that your eyes have if you could see, right? But if you can't see well, then everything pays for the fact that your eyes can't see well, right? And he says, um, your whole body will therefore be full of darkness. And then he says, if the light within you is darkness, which is an interesting saying, how great is that darkness? Meaning that the light within you is whatever you can or can't see. So he says, if what you can or can't see is nothing, <laughs> if it's darkness, it's a great darkness because we can all imagine if you aren't blind, being blind. And you can imagine that that would be a very difficult life. Right? And he says, so therefore, so therefore what you get from that passage is that one of the most important things, perhaps the most important thing about a human being is what they can or can't see. And I'm not talking about what they physically can or can't see. Jesus is talking about what they spiritually can or can't see. And he says, in order to be able to see it all, you have to basically get two things straight. One is you can't have two masters. No human being can live untorn apart with two masters. It's impossible. And he said, so therefore, in order not to have two masters, you have to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first before anything else. Does that make sense? Now, the reason why I bring that back up is because John uses those same themes. Light and darkness and the kingdom, right? And so in John 3, it starts with this Pharisee named Nicodemus coming— so Pharisees are a Jewish religious teacher, and he comes to Jesus. His name's Nicodemus, and he's, it says he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, which is the Sanhedrin, which is the 70 elders that are in charge of Israel. So what that means is this guy is a, basically the top professor of religion and a senator, Okay? And he comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Okay? Now, John likes to use words that can mean two things that are related to each other. In John 1, there's this place where he says that light, that is Jesus, the Son, the Word, is coming into the world. And he says, the, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not blank it. And that word is translated, I think, in the Bible you have in your hands, overcome it. So the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. If you go back to the 1982, the first NIV translation, they put in understand it. Because the word is very similar to the English word mastered, right? So I could say, Jude, did you master chapter 4 in your math book? Right? What does that mean? That means that he completely understands it. He's got it. He's got it, right? Or I can say, when you wrestled your friend Jonah, did you master him? Meaning, were you able to completely pin him down and hold him there so that he couldn't really fight back? Right? And the word really means both. You see? And so this light shines into a world that's really kind of blind to it. And on one level, the world, like, can't master it. It can't defeat Jesus. And so people are like, yeah, you know, you read John 1, it's like, the light shines in the darkness, right? But then you keep reading, and John focuses really heavily on, actually, 
it's one of the reasons why the darkness can't overcome the light is that the darkness has no idea what's going on. It just, we, nobody really understands what the significance of the light is. And so Nicodemus comes in, right? And he comes to Jesus at night. It's the only time John refers to the night in his gospel, right? Except for when he gets crucified, which is also a very dark moment, right? Nicodemus comes at night, and he asks Jesus this question, and Jesus says, Truly I tell you, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, what does that mean? Now, most of us, I mean, Bibles now practically come with John 3.16 already underlined, right? Like, so if, if anybody knows a verse from John 3, it's probably God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, right? Everybody, right? And so what that means is when Jesus says, um, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Everybody just assumes, because we know John three sixteen, that must mean ultimate salvation and eternal life. So you can't receive or enter into salvation unless, you know, you're born again, whatever that, whatever the heck that means, right? And so, but that's not what it means. Well, it actually, because it, it actually means both, right? You see, Nicodemus comes at night because he's confused about the meaning of Jesus. And he's asking a question for Jesus to kind of explain to him what's his significance, right? And Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, and he doesn't say what that means yet. He's intentionally being more confusing, okay? So this this happens sometimes when you're trying to help somebody see something they don't really, they think they want to see, but they don't really want to see, is you like, you answer their question with something that's a little more confusing, right? It's a great parenting model, Okay. (laughs) So that they're like, what are you talking about? You know, and then you can really hit them with it because then they're listening, you know? And so he says, you can't, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now that can mean either you can't understand anything about it or you can't enter into it. And it actually means both. It means both. And one of the reasons why that's important is you'd be like, well, Nick, it's just the word see. Like, what's the big deal? Well, here's the thing. John starts his chapter with that word kind of having a double meaning. And then he ends the chapter with that word. Right? The very last verse in, in the chapter is, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Now, in that context, the primary reference is eternal life. They won't enter into. So I can say, um, I think I see what John 3 is saying, or I can say, I want to see my grandchildren. Right? This is very different things. Here, he means the second You won't enter into the time where you'll experience the thing that you want to experience. But it also means because you can't see the kingdom. You can't understand it. You can't experience it. Because you can only, spiritually speaking, you can only experience what you'll, what you'll understand. Right? Now, one of the things that's important about that is that this will dictate your immediate emotional life in terms of joy or frustration. Because um, now, you know, when Jesus puts either ors in front of us, it's normal for us to be like, well, I want neither. I want to just do my own thing. But that's the problem with Jesus is he's always saying that's not really an option. Creation or life is set up in a certain way and it functions that way. And, and a lot of things in creation and in life are binary. Because we human beings are certain kinds of creatures. 
There are certain things that will produce joy in us, and there are certain things that will produce frustration in us, and sometimes there's not another option. And so there's this thing, Jesus is saying, there's this thing called the kingdom that he is and is doing in the world, and it, it is either something you're going to be happy about, or it's going to be something you're going to feel is threatening. And so it's either going to affect joy, or it's going to, or it's going to affect confusion and frustration, or it's going to feel threatening. And remember, not just for irreligious people, for very pious, spiritual, and religious people. Because here's the thing. It's not just irreligious people that are worldly and don't want to see the kingdom of God the way it is and don't want to really take Jesus for who he is. It's humans. It's humans that don't want to do that. And so in, in a way, all of us have to grapple with this no matter how far along in the faith you think you are, right? Now, th this is a little bit difficult because Nicodemus says, so this is what I'm talking about. If you weren't here last week, this is the, the 21 verses right before the passage we read today, okay? So there's this guy, Nicodemus, and he's like, okay, so no one can see the kingdom unless he's born again. So Nicodemus's next logical step is to say, okay, so I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to be born again. And he says, isn't it impossible to climb into a, your mother's womb and be born again? And the answer is, <laughs> I hope so. Right? And see, partly here, see, birth is a metaphor for a lot of things, right? One of them is the travail or the difficulty or the pain, the bloodiness of birth, right? And so when Jesus says, you have to be born again, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is saying, okay, I'm going to do this thing, he's thinking in a way, he's like, okay, it's like this great difficulty, right? And so I, and like, you have to even climb back in, that might be worse than being born, like, but like, it's just some great thing that has to be done, and Jesus is like, yeah, Man, I think you might have missed what I was saying, right? Because what Jesus is saying is, birth is fundamentally passive, right? Nicodemus takes it as this really active thing, like, I'm going to climb into a womb, and you're like, that's not what I'm saying. No, birth happens to you at somebody else's cost. And there's, there's really nothing you can do to make it happen, right? And so, so Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, he says, listen, um, he says, a flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised that I'm saying you have to be born again or born of the spirit, right? And then he says, you know, you can see the effects of the wind, but the wind blows wherever it wants to, and it blows in and it blows out, and nobody can tell what's, what's happening. And that's the way it is with the spirit. Okay, now I just misquoted the Bible. Did you pick up on it? He doesn't—that's not what he says. He doesn't say, the, you see the effects of the wind, it blows in and it blows out, and that's the way it is with the Spirit. He says, that's the way it is with everybody who is born of the Spirit. So he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about every human person who receives this thing he's talking about called the new birth, which he now also calls the birth in the Spirit, right? Spiritual birth, right? And he says, if you've ever been there for a birth, who's been there for a birth? Okay, if you haven't been there for a birth and you have the opportunity— be there. Just invite yourself into one. <laughs> right? But you should experience it because it's a harrowing kind of thing. It's the most natural thing where you think everybody's going to die. Right? It's like this—it's the scariest thing that's completely normal in the world, okay? And so—and <clears throat> so it's—so so we're thinking that way about 
Nicodemus is thinking that way about birth, and Jesus is like, you know, that's not what I mean. It's nothing like that. He's like, this is how the spiritual birth happens. It's this crazy. The Holy Spirit blows in, the Holy Spirit blows out, and it's happened. That's it. It's not, nobody screams, there's no blood. There's none of that. There's no labor. Right? Anybody who's been born again, you didn't fight, you didn't labor, you didn't like dilate. You just, like, you were just born again. It just, this Holy Spirit came in. You were completely passive. God regenerated your spirit. He gave you the gift of his Holy Spirit. You became born again. And it was like basically walking outside and the wind blew through your hair. In that sense, it was nothing like birth. Right? And you see, that's what, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You're getting the metaphor wrong. I'm not talking about the blood, sweat, and tears. I'm talking about that it's passive, and it's a new beginning, and it's a different kind of life than what was being experienced before. Right? Life outside the womb is very different than life inside the womb. It's a new beginning, and it's a birth into something brand new. He's like, that's what I mean. That's what being born of the Spirit is. Right? And then Nicodemus' response is, how can this be? Right? Now wait, what's so impossible about that notion? Right? Jesus says, look, it's completely logical, right? Nicodemus, you are of the the flesh. That is meaning you're part of creation, and you are worldly, and you are even sinful, and you are—woo! Oh, that's not good. Um, You are— You're bound up in fleshliness, and so whatever you produce yourself, no matter how hard you work, even if you work as hard as a mother giving birth to a baby, you can't produce anything else. You can't produce something spiritual. You may produce something, but it'll be of the flesh. He said, only spirit can produce spirit. And seeing the kingdom is the result of a spiritual birth. And that spiritual birth can only happen if the spirit births it. Do you see? And so when Nicodemus says, how, is it, how can this possibly be? You see what he's saying? He's, he's saying, how can it be that I can't do it? Do you see? Do you understand? He's saying, wait, whatever this is, whatever this thing that has to happen for you to see the kingdom of God and for you to be part of the kingdom, how can it be something I can't do? That's, that's totally wrong, right? And Jesus says, you should already know it's the case. How could, how could you produce a spiritual thing? That's not how it works. You see, this is really important because it demonstrates that the spirituality of Jesus is fundamentally unlike all other spiritualities in the world, right? And there's a lot of Christians who are, you know, we try to be spiritual. Have you done this? Like, tried, like, you're, like, praying to be loving, but instead of just asking God to help you be loving and then try to go obey his commands about love, you, like, try to feel more loving while you're praying, right? You're trying to, like, pr- like you know what I mean? You're, you're, you're asking God to help you forgive somebody, And so you're trying to produce forgiving feelings inside yourself, right? Trying to be spiritual. That's not really how Jesus teaches it happens. But it leads us to a problem because if we're trying to do it, and Jesus explicitly says, you can't do it, we're kind of left in this situation like, well, what the heck am I supposed to be doing? Right? And what Jesus says is, he says, this is the way it works. He says, I have come to testify to something that I've seen and heard in a way that's completely truthful. And you have to believe me. See, you actually can't create a spiritual rebirth inside yourself. It's not not really, it's not in your wheelhouse, right? I can't do it for you. I can't do it for myself. None of us can do it. 
Um, but what you can do is you can hear the truth and you can say, yes, that's right. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. And you see, that's what God is saying. Jesus is saying, I came to, say, I came to do something you can do, which is I'm going to tell you something and you have to believe it. And so when you look at John 3, what this ultimately comes down to, to not in spite of religious people, especially for people who think that they believe, is Jesus is telling the truth and you need to believe him. And that's the only way you're ever going to see him. Right? Because the worldliness has built into us misunderstanding. Our selfishness produces constant misunderstanding. All of our sin cataracts places in our spiritual sight so that we cannot see what Jesus sees. And it's impossible for us to see it. And we need spiritual rebirth for that, which we can't do. That surgery cannot be done on ourselves by ourselves. And so the only thing we can do is we can receive a statement and say, I believe that. That's why Jesus said, we'll get to our passage for this morning in just a second, I promise. Um, this is all intentional. I'm, it's not a digression, I promise. Um, <clears throat> that's why Jesus says it's like when Moses lifted up the snake in the desert in the book of Numbers, right? All the people of Israel were getting bitten by poison snakes, and they were dying, and they were like, oh, God, help us! And God was like, okay. So they made a bronze snake, and they put it up on a pole where everybody could see it, right? And if you got bit by a poison snake and you were dying, if you didn't want to die, you could look at the bronze snake on the pole, and God would heal you, right? Now, now, I don't know a lot about medicine, okay? But if you get bitten by a poisonous snake and you look at a bronze snake, that doesn't help, okay? It, do, it doesn't help. And the Bible is not like horrifically primitive and doesn't know that, right? What, what it means is, is that once you get bit by a snake and you're dying, you can't help yourself. Somebody else has to help you. So on what basis— is the God who sent the snakes to bite you because of your own sin willing to save you from his own penalty, right? And his answer was, all you got to do is acknowledge you need help. You just got to acknowledge the truth. That's it. You just got to look at the snake. I sent that snake because you deserved that snake. But if you will just look at the bronze snake, I'll heal you, right? They couldn't heal themselves, but they could look at the bronze snake. And if they refused to look at the bronze snake, they were going to die of the venom that was coursing through their veins. But if they would look at the bronze snake, God would heal them supernaturally, right? And Jesus is saying, that's how the new birth happens, okay? That's how the new birth happens. The miracle that needs to happen inside you that you can't do, God will do by his spirit. That's it. It's passive. It's like birth. You can't do anything about it. But it happens on the basis of one thing you can do which is to acknowledge that the truthful one is telling you the truth. Okay. Now, in the second half of this passage, John specifically applies this in three ways to pious people. Okay, religious people. Because the people in this passage are the most spiritual people in Israel. Okay? Most spiritual people in Israel. Nicodemus— is like the teacher of religion for Israel. Jesus calls him Israel's teacher because he's like the top professor of religion. And then the, on the second half, right, the people who are struggling with the implications of Jesus are the disciples of John the Baptist, okay? And John the Baptist, Jesus explicitly says is the most spiritual guy on planet earth besides him, okay? And these are his disciples. So it's, pro it's probable that if you normally go to High Point Church, 
and you've been listening to me for a while, we are less spiritual than them. Okay? And so the first paragraph of this passage teaches this point. That if you don't believe Jesus' testimony, then the kingdom looks like a threat, and it's going to motivate jealousy. And jealousy is kind of the opposite of thankful joy. Right? Because Jesus is doing this thing, and if you're not on board, then it's really, it's kind of against you, and you're kind of like, I don't like this. Right? And so you kind of get upset about it, and that's not going to make you happy about it. Right? Now, you could see this in the passage because John's disciples have a problem with what's happening. Because what's happening is Jesus has come to baptize people in this same region. And John the Baptist is like a big deal, okay? So we read, we read the gospel, and you know, John the Baptist is in a couple of chapters, and we're like, oh, John the Baptist, okay. Now, if you're new to church, John the Baptist and John the writer of the gospel of John, not the same person. John the apostle, John the Baptist. Okay, so John the Baptist is— Jesus says in Luke 7, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, which is most people, there is no one greater than John, which means one of two things. Either Jesus is saying, John is the greatest human on planet Earth at that moment, or that he's the greatest human on planet Earth at all moments. Okay? Which is kind of a compliment. Right? He, um, John the Baptist's ministry is itself a fulfillment of prophecy from 500 years before. He's, his birth is miraculous, right? His, his parents were elderly and infertile, and an angel comes and says that Elizabeth is going to have a child, and then God picks out his name. Now, now, I like my name, but my parents pick my name. John is one of only two people in the New Testament where God picks out their name. They're like, no, I, no, I'm picking the name. Like, that's not very common that God, like, usurps the parent's right to pick a name. It's like the only thing good about parenting. You know? I'm just kidding. That's not true. That's not true. (laughs) But there's there's only two people. Jesus, the Savior of the world, and John get their names picked out by God. Right? He's not worldly at all. Right? He dresses like Elijah. He wears camel hair and like a leather belt, and he eats grasshoppers. Okay, so he's, so he's not addicted to Outback Steakhouse. Okay, like the guy is willing to let go all the comforts of life so as to not be engrossed by them. And you may be like, well, maybe, maybe he's not a good social justice warrior or something. Maybe. Well, no. Actually, one of the things that's most amazing about John is every time he saw injustice, he spoke directly into it. And so when there was religious hypocrisy, the, the Pharisees come out, he's like, you brood of vipers, like, how do you think you're going to get out of hell? And they're like, what? And then some soul, he, like, he's preaching to soldiers, right? And probably some of these soldiers are Roman soldiers. They had this whole extortion racket going on, and, he, and they're like, well, how can we come to God? And he's like, well, be content with your pay and quit extorting people. And believe and get baptized and you can be saved, right? And they're like, wait, that's my— that's what do, you, what do you mean, right? And then, do you know how he gets himself killed? He's a martyr. He tells the king that he can't marry the lady he marries because she's his close relative and, like, divorced, like, one of his, his relatives. And so eventually the guy, like, gets him arrested, and then one of his nieces, like, makes a deal to get him killed, and he gets beheaded. So there is no—there is no better social justice warrior than, than John the Baptist, Right? 
In addition to that, he launches Jesus' ministry, tells everybody they ought to listen to him. He's the one who sees the Holy Spirit descend on him. He's like, listen, this guy's amazing. And John basically invented baptism, the most globally used action of spiritual reformation ever invented in humanity. All right? He is leading the greatest, he's at this moment in the Bible, leading the greatest spiritual revival that had happened in 500 years. And it is completely spiritually legitimate. And listen, he's not like past his prime or something. I mean, it's not like he's been doing this for 40 years and now he's like 78 and Jesus shows up at 30 and like it's time to pass the baton. He's six months older than Jesus. Right? He's absolutely in his prime. He's just getting started. Right? And now everyone's going over to Jesus. Right? And his disciples are like, what gives, man? And, he, and they basically say, John, you ought to do something about this. Like, Jesus, this guy—they don't even say Jesus. This is what they say. They came to him and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan— the one you testified about. Like, you're the one who even got him started, right? And look, he's baptizing. Is his name Jesus the Baptist? I don't think so. <laughs> right? He's baptizing, and everyone is going over to him. Right? This is all about John's authority. Right? They're like, John, you're the great— I mean, all these people give you authority in our, in our country. And like, if this revival is going to keep going, like, the crowds have to come to you so you can preach and you can baptize. And like, you're the guy. And he is the guy. Like, this isn't about John's pride. But they're totally off base. They're totally off base. They're totally in darkness. Right? And listen, listen to me. They're more pious than you. Okay, I don't care. Listen, I don't care how spiritually you think you are. It's so easy to read over stuff like this and be like, well, these people clearly didn't know what was happening. No, 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 no. We're supposed to say, that person's better than me. That's what you're supposed to say. John's disciples are probably way more spiritual than me. I mean, they're living out in the desert with this guy who eats grasshoppers. What do you think dinner is like at that buffet? Right? And, 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 they, and they're jealous for this revival and— and Jesus just goes, or John just, just kind of dismisses it, you know? And here's what, here's what you need to understand. If you and I don't take Jesus at his word, he's going to do stuff that's going to make us super frustrated and jealous and angry and anxious. And it's going to drive us crazy. And to the extent to which you know the kingdom of God is there— it's going to just bother you. And that's how, that's how worldliness produces. That's why you can only have one master. Because if you believe in Jesus and you know that kingdom is there, but then you've got this other life you're doing to where in which he is not first, this life is always being encroached upon by Jesus. It's always in danger of what he's going to do for his kingdom. And you can't even really see what his kingdom is doing because you've put these, these spots of spiritual blindness in front of you and the whole thing is just intolerable. And these guys are at their wit's end, and Nicodemus was too. He didn't know what to do because Jesus didn't really let him ask his real question. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but like, if you read John chapter 2, it's very clear what Nicodemus' question is going to be. Because John 2 says that Jesus goes into the temple with a whip and drives everybody out of there, right? 
And then it says he did a lot of miracles and a lot of people put their faith in him. And then Nicodemus shows up with a question. What do you think Nicodemus' question is? He, he prefaced the question with, Rabbi, you must be from God because nobody could do all these miracles if God wasn't with them. That was the subject, right? The second part of the question was, why the heck are you messing with the temple and what rights do you have to do it? What's going on, right? Jesus didn't even let him get that far. He's like, let me just tell you, before you even ask your question, you can't understand any of this stuff unless you're born again. And Jesus just hijacked the whole conversation for something better, right? And so the kind of joy that we are meant to have in the present. You see, we look at John 3, and because we look at John 3, 16, and some of the other verses, we, we see the horizon of eternal life or eternal judgment, right? And we go, oh, that's what this is about. But that's not what it's about for the characters in the story. If you read this like a story, it's a narrative, right? For the people in the chapter, it's about now. It's about how they're feeling right now. It's about how they're experiencing spiritual life right now, and how they're confused and frustrated and threatened and angry. Right? And this chapter is about both. It's about your eternal state, and it is just about how turned around and divided and jealous and broken and hurt you're feeling because of the fact of the kingdom that you can't really see, and it's driving you crazy. And, and, and I'm telling you, Jesus told us the truth, and we need to believe him so that we can see him. And so we can enter into the kind of joy that all of his activity is supposed to bring to us, right? Second thing is, we'll spend less time on this. Only a steward can be diminished with joy. Okay, um, you may not have been here six weeks ago or five weeks ago when we talked about stewardship. Stewardship is not giving money to the church. That's not what stewardship is, okay? Uh, the, the word stewardship comes from the, the English word steward, which means somebody who is completely in charge of something and doesn't own it. Right? And so in, in English estates, you'd have like the Earl of Gloucester, you know, would—I think that's from a Shakespeare thing—would um, own like this, this like manor, right? But he'd hardly ever be there. You know, he's in the city in society, right? And meanwhile, there's like some blue-collar guy that learned how to read and do math who's like running the place, the whole place, right? And he's the steward. And as steward, he enjoys the estate. Like, he gets to ride the horses and use the carriages and drink the tea and crumpets and, like, have coffee in the, in the, in the English-style garden that he's in charge of making beautiful. But he gets to enjoy its beauty too, right? And so you can kind of imagine a situation in which, you know, it's May, and he gets this telegram that the Earl is going to come to the estate for two months, Right? Like, while he's, like, having coffee in the garden and looking at his roses, right? And the answer—the question is, if you're that guy, or imagine it's a woman, how do you feel at that moment? Right? Do you feel like, oh, that guy's such a drone? Like— it's, I mean, we're going to have to do dinners every night and like wash the silver and we're going to—it's going to be so much work. Ugh. Or is your response, the Earl is going to get some use out of his estate that we have been spending all year making great and beautiful so that he can enjoy it because it's his. You understand? You see, that, that attitude completely determines your emotional life. 
You see, if you think your life is yours, then the Earl is always showing up to your estate, and it'll drive you insane. Who is this squatter that thinks he owns the place? Right? And it'll just make you upset. And, and then especially if you get diminished or your life gets demolished, you are going to be angry to the nth degree, right? It's, it's enough for it just to be inconvenient, right? But if like something really bad happens to you, meanwhile, John the Baptist, right? The thing he's made for, prophecies, miracles, and it's going well, and he's in his prime, and he hasn't even been doing it very long, and all of a sudden he's just going to be just puffed off into like insignificance, and then in a few months get arrested and then get beheaded, right? And his disciples are like, what are you going to do about this? And he's like, I'm going to do what I'm already doing, being happy. <laughs> what do you think I'm going to do, right? And he says, and here's how you know that he has the mind of a steward, because you'd be like, Nick, there's no British estate in this passage. I know, but here's how you know that, that he has the attitude of a steward. It's the wedding metaphor he uses. Right? He says, a person can only receive what he's given from heaven, right? That, he's talking about himself. Heaven gives me something, and I just receive it and then use it. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah. I'm sent ahead of him. Right? And then he says, the bridegroom belongs to, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is, and is full of joy when he hears his bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, how uncomfortable would you be if you went to a wedding, right? And like the best man was acting like the groom was like this problem, right? Getting constantly between him and the bride, right? He's like winking at her during the vows and like— kind of like photobombing every picture that they're trying to take, and like he gets up at the reception to go talk to people, and he like sits down by the bride, puts his arm around, starts clinking the glass himself. Like, he, like it would be a very uncomfortable situation. You, got, you want to be like, how much has he drank? Like, what's going on? Because there's something pretty fundamental about a, a wedding, right? And that is the bride is mainly there for the groom. Right? And vice versa. The groom is there for the bride and there for each other. That's what the whole ceremony is about. And so if you, if you are a groomsman, you don't get joy out of possessing the bride. That's not how that works. You're there because you love the two of them and that the two of them are coming together. This has very little to do with you, right? And your joy is derived from their relationship with each other. To the extent to which you love the groom and you love the bride— Whatever you've ever done for them, you are watching because none of it belongs to you. You see, what, what John realized was that revival didn't belong to him. His miraculous birth didn't belong to him. His name picked out by God didn't belong to him. His invention of baptism or popularizing of didn't really belong to him. None of that belonged to anybody. It belongs to the groom, Right? It all belongs to him, and the bride is for him. And so anybody who's come to John to get baptized, they all belong to Jesus. And so when Jesus comes for his own, that's a good moment. That's not a bad moment. That's the wedding. 
You see, because John has this straight, I want you to listen. This is very important. Because this is already straight in John's mind, because he can spiritually see, he's only got one master. His masters are not God and the revival he's clinging to for his own name. He's got one master. That's it, man. And he can see. In the moment where he is getting incredibly diminished in the prime of his life, and his life is going to get demolished, he says that his joy is full. He thinks of the happiest event in human life that he can possibly think of. One of his best friends getting married. And he says, the joy that you ought to feel then is the joy I'm feeling right now. And I want you to understand that that is available to you. And you can't really live without it. Because you were meant to be happy. Right? The reason, well, the reason you have a capacity for joy is because God wanted you to feel joy. Right? Your, your capacity for pleasure is a God-created thing. It's God's intention that you should be happy in Him forever. And you are not capable as a human creature to not care about your happiness. And you are created to be the sort of creature in which your happiness, that is your joy, motivates everything else you do. It is the wellspring of your strength. It's from where you draw most of your courage. It's, it's incredibly practically necessary for everything you're going to do. And so you cannot afford to not be joyful. In fact, the Bible doesn't just say you can't be joyful. The Bible everywhere commands you to be joyful. In Philippians, Paul says, be joyful always, as though it's a virtue, not just a feeling. In Romans 12, it says, we'll talk about these in the coming weeks. He says, be joyful in hope, right? So maybe there's some other, there's things in your life that it's not easy to be joyful about. But you see, if you can see the kingdom, if you can see it, and you know what's happening, right? There is great joy that can be derived from that hope, no matter what's happening to you. And so God can command us to be joyful because there is always an infinite wellspring of hope from which we can find joy if we can spiritually see. Does that make sense? Which leads to the very specific question of, well, then how do you do it, though? How do you, how do you get there from here? And the answer is, is that believing in Jesus means believing in Jesus. This is a very complicated idea that's going to take me a while to explain. Um, sorry, that was meant to be just dry humor. The, um, so as a pastor, I talk to a lot of people about their faith. And one of the things that I'm, I, I sometimes am surprised to find until I find it myself is the personal protest that I believe in Jesus, I just don't believe Jesus about what he says. Right? And you see this very, very commonly. People who, if you told them they weren't a Christian, you, they'd be like, I'm a Christian, you judgmental jerk person. And then you're like, okay, do you really want me to read the stuff Jesus says? And see how you're, whether or not you think it's right? And I cannot tell you how many people have come up with incredibly creative ways to say, oh, those two aren't related. <laughs> they're not, they're, well, 
believing in Jesus and being a Christian and believing Jesus, that is, responding to what he says and believing it's right and therefore acting like it's right, they're just, those are two totally different things. They're not totally different things. They are literally exactly the same thing. Right? Because in, in John 3, listen to me, in John 3, Jesus does not actually say, just believe in me. He says, I have come and given you testimony that is a content of truths. He says that I'm speaking to you and you need to believe my testimony. Do you realize that? That that's in the, that's the text, right? He says, in verse 32, John is talking about Jesus. He says, he, Jesus, testifies to what he's seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony, right? And if you go a little bit earlier in, in the chapter, he says, Verse 10, Jesus is talking now to Nicodemus. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak. Now, he's referring to himself as we now. And the reason for that is, is that Nicodemus referred to himself as we. And so Jesus is kind of playing a little tricky game with him. But Jesus means himself in this case, okay? He says, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. And still you people do not accept our testimony. You see, Jesus isn't saying just, I'm here, believe in me, and then you'll go to heaven. He's saying, I'm telling you about this thing called the kingdom. Like, that is God's rule and ownership and interchange and interplay with everything that's created that you're a part of, and you're just, you can't not be a part of it. You're in it. You were created. Here you are. And I'm, I'm telling you what it's like, right? And I'm telling you the truth, right? And the, the way that Jesus says it is he says, listen— Eternal life and life of the Spirit is the same thing in this passage as the kingdom of heaven or heaven, right? And so Jesus says, so how do you get information that is accurate about heaven? If heaven is the place of the Spirit and flesh gives birth to flesh, who gets to talk? And so John's like, well, we can receive the Spirit. God can give, we can receive something from heaven and we can say what we can say. But John says, like, even for me, I'm still talking like a guy from the earth, Right? I've received a certain amount of knowledge through the Spirit, but I can't really talk like somebody who has seen and heard heaven. Right? And Jesus says, that's right. There's only one. There's only one who has literally come from heaven. For whom when he talks about heaven and the kingdom of heaven and the life of the Spirit and salvation and anything related to that, there's only one person who is testifying legally of something that he has personally witnessed. And he's doing it in a way to demonstrate that he is extraordinarily trustworthy because everything's going to come down to whether or not we believe him. And that's why he does all the miracles. That's why he lived the quality of life that he lived. That's why he did everything that wasn't being crucified. It was all meant to demonstrate his trustworthiness because science can, can't actually find out information about heaven. It's just, it's not, it's not something it can investigate. And history can't do it. The, the only thing that can happen is somebody who has been there can tell us, and then we have to decide whether or not to believe him. And Jesus is saying, that's the only way for us to enter into the kingdom. The only way we can receive the Spirit, right? The only way we can be saved. The only way we can see life, both understanding it and 
stepping into it. And so, for some of you, you just, you might not be a Christian, and you, you might know that about yourself, or maybe that point has helped you understand that maybe that's not true about you, and that's completely fine, right? Because Jesus' invitation is, is constant, right? He's always inviting you. He's always inviting you. He's extremely hospitable, right? And so he's saying, come, come in, right? Just right, well, right now. All you can do is right now is believe the truthful testimony of Jesus, and then you'll receive the Spirit, and you'll see it. I mean, increasingly. You don't see it all just like that, right? And then there's some of us who believe that, like, we've already experienced that, right? And that's, that's probably true. But at the same time, every time we don't believe something Jesus said, we are intentionally, like, putting a blind spot up so that we can't see the kingdom and how it functions. And every place that that's true, whenever that place affects our lives, we're intentionally blind to how it functions. And so it's going to drive us bananas, do you understand? Every place where you put up is like, well, I don't believe, I believe that thing Jesus said, but I don't believe this and this and this. Well, every time Jesus does his thing in any of those things, it's not, you're not a steward in those areas. You don't accept his ownership. And so every time he does it, it's a threat. He's your rival. He's not a ruler, right? And it, it'll, even though you're a Christian, you believe God in these things, you don't in those, and it's gonna, it's gonna destroy your joy because you don't have a real steward's joy. Not yet. But you can. You have to, you have to believe him. And you might say, and this is the last thing I'll say about this. You might say, well, but Nick, is that really loving to demand that we believe? I mean, I mean, yeah, Jesus may be the perfect testifier, and it may be that we should believe it. But I mean, it's just one witness. I mean, how can we really know, right? I mean, is it, wouldn't it be more loving if God really loved the world? Why would he, like, put the bar so high? Like, like that's a high bar. And the answer, I think, is right in the passage, and it has everything to do with love, right? Because if you look at the last verse of this passage, listen to verse 34 to the end. Verse, verse 32 for the end. He testifies, as Jesus, to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Verse 33. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. That's they've agreed. Now remember, he doesn't say there that Jesus is truthful. He says that if you believe or accept what Jesus says, you're actually certifying that God is truthful, right? That the Father is truthful. And then he says this. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives his spirit without limit. And then verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And then it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see, the idea here is not that God doesn't love you. He loves everyone in the world in a very literal way. He loves you and wants you to be able to see the kingdom and enjoy it and be part of it, to see it in every way. Okay, but listen. He also loves his Son. He also loves his Son. And it's, it's, it's incongruous, and it is rude, and it is, well, it's hateful to say to God, why don't you love me better? When from his perspective, by rejecting his son, we claim that his son is a liar and worthless and not worth believing, and we express hatred towards his son. You see, God's not up for that. He's just not up for that. He loves too well. 
And so what he requires is, is that his loves merge in the beauty of salvation. That the love he has for his son, because his son deserves his love, okay? He gives us his love because he's just generous. We don't deserve his love. We just receive his love. Jesus deserves his love. It would be wrong for God to restrain his love from Jesus. Do you understand? Jesus deserves it. And so a loving God cannot accept a hateful treatment of his own son that's not for a redemptive purpose. Do you understand? And so the reason we are demanded to trust his trustworthy son is so that his love for the son, which is unbreakable, and his love for us that is dramatically offered in his son can come together in beautiful and perfect unity which makes us a steward of all of his glory that's in his son so that we can be made eternally happy. So that not only in eternal life can we see joy, but so that right now, whether our life is getting disintegrated or diminished or demolished, we could have the same heart that's in John the Baptist. My joy is complete. It's complete. And so I I don't know where you are or how you feel or what or anything, but all I can say is this. Jesus is trustworthy. He's the one witness from heaven. He came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He came to be that witness, not just to be the Savior, but to be that witness so that you would have someone trustworthy to believe in. And the Father loves his Son, has put everything on his Son. And so you need to believe him. And if you believe him, then, then you will really see him. And through him, ultimately see the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would, you would help us to look to the bronze snake that is your son, lifted up above our heads in his death and resurrection, and to be healed of the poison of sin and brokenness and blindness that runs in our veins as fallen and broken human beings. And we pray that you would free us, that you would rebirth us in your spirit, that you would help us to see the kingdom in our hearts and minds' eye so as to free us to joy in this moment and also to prepare us and seal us and draw us to that salvation that is everlasting. And I pray that you would help us both to accept your love for us in Christ and the love that you have relentlessly placed on Christ and teach us how we can never ask you to choose between them. God, please show us and teach us and draw us so that this, this day in 2018 and beyond, we can live in joy, a joy that is complete. I pray in Jesus' name.